Hello, and thank you for listening to this Virginia Mason Institute webinar recording. The video recordings and Q&A transcripts are also available on our website under the resources section. Thanks again for listening. Thank you everyone for joining us for today's webinar. My name is Tad Aquat, and I'm pleased to uh, welcome you all. So just first, some quick introductions um, and a couple housekeeping slides. Today's presenter, Summer Shields, is a senior partner here at Virginia Mason Institute. As a former practice manager, uh, medical practice management consultant and director of operations, Summer brings over 20 years of experience in healthcare operations and leadership. She is board certified with the American College of Medical Practice Executives, holds a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration from Oregon State University, and an MBA in Healthcare uh, from Oregon Health Science University and Portland State University. As a director at Virginia Mason Medical Center, she's led the strategy, growth, and operations of a multi-specialty outpatient medical center. She served as participant and leader on several innovation and design events and brings extensive experience in applying the concepts of world-class management, change management, and continuous improvement to the practice of medicine. Shelly uh, Powell is our special guest today. She is Vice President of Patient Care Services for Virginia Mason Medical Center. Shelly has oversight responsibility for the Department of Primary Care, nine multi-specialty regional medical centers, laboratory pathology, and patient access centers. She's held a variety of leadership roles in ambulatory care, human resources, and the Kaizen Promotion Office. Since its inception in 2001, Shelly's been a leader in teaching and applying the Virginia Mason production system, a management method that seeks to continuously improve how care is delivered. Shelly joined Virginia Mason in 1997. She has her bachelor's degree in human resource management from University of Utah and her master's in organizational development from Seattle University. So we are a part of Virginia Mason Franciscan Health, a health system with 11 hospitals and 300 sites of care based in Washington. And Virginia Mason Institute is a mission-driven nonprofit education and training organization that helps organizations worldwide create cultures of continuous improvement. All right. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and pass it off to Summer. Thank you, Tad. And good morning, everyone. We're so glad to join you today. Um, we're going to talk a little bit today about how to um, understanding the root cause, the impact and opportunities that we have to address um, this well-known issue around workforce fatigue and burnout. Um, we'll talk about the role of leadership in creating a culture that engages teams and promotes well-being, and then some strategies to ensure our staff well-being um, is intact and pre uh, prevention for fatigue and burnout as we move forward. We know that staff burnout is a bigger threat than ever to organizational performance. A recent study at Stanford reviewed how workplace stress affects health costs and mortality in the US and found that it leads to annual spending of nearly 190 billion or roughly 8% of national healthcare spending, along with contributing to nearly 120,000 deaths each year. Another study by American Psychology Association claims that burned out employees are 2.6 times more likely to be actively seeking a new job, 63% more likely to take a sick day, and 23% more likely to visit the emergency room. So what does this mean for healthcare? When healthcare workers are suffering, so do their patients. Studies link burnout to patient dissatisfaction, higher costs, poor patient results, and medical errors. And sadly, our 
passion-driven and caregiving roles, such as doctors and nurses, are some of the most susceptible to burnout, with suicide rates among caregivers being dramatically higher than the general public. So we know it's serious, and yet what is causing this epidemic? The root causes of burnout are not what you might think. They do not really lie with the individual, and yes, they can be averted if leadership starts prevention strategies much further upstream. If an employee is dealing with burnout, we have to stop and ask ourselves why. We should never suggest that if they just practice more grit or join another yoga class or take in a mindfulness course that their burnout could have been avoided. Practicing gratitude and optimism, building resilience, they are the path to prevention, but they're not the cure. Some of the most common factors in burnout reported by working individuals are things like lack of fairness or mutual respect, unmanageable workloads, lack of role clarity, poor communication, unreasonable time pressures and poor workflows, and importantly, lack of meaningful connections. This slide shows us what physicians are reporting as primary contributors to burnout in the United Kingdom. It's things that we've just heard about, lack of respect, lack of control around my own work. And we know that burnout did not start with the pandemic, but it has intensified the result. The chart on the left here is a Journal of American Medical Association study on nurse burnout. This is from a survey of more than 400,000 nurses who recently quit their jobs. Nearly one third cited burnout as the reason for leaving. But you can see that the other two factors circled, stressful work environment and lack of good management or leadership are also closely tied to what we're talking about today. On your right is a Medscape survey on physician burnout in the United States, and it reiterates that lack of control over my work, lack of respect, and waste are primary contributor, com contributors to burnout. So to fully understand how to address burnout, we must look at it from the context of a broader system. The model shown here was produced by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. It emphasizes that we need a systems approach suggesting that individual focused strategies may be beneficial and may have an effect as part of a larger organizational effort, but on their own, they do not sufficiently address clinician burnout. The NAM systems model looks at burnout factors on three levels, front care, frontline care delivery, healthcare organization, and the external environment. Each influences the other and is a contributing factor in burnout or contributes to professional well-being. Other factors unique to each individual, such as personality, coping strategies, resilience, social support, these mediate the effects of the work system factors, but are not sufficient to prevent burnout or produce well-being on their own. What is necessary is the intersection of a learning organization, one where team members feel empowered, respected, and have psychological safety so that they can contribute to the continuous improvement processes that help us identify evaluate and implement effective improvements at all levels of the system. So how can we, what can we do about it? What, how do we build a path forward? First, we need to take a step back and ask ourselves as leaders, what is making my staff so unhealthy? How can I make it safe for people to work here every day? We have to dig into the data and ask our people what would make it better for them. We need to better understand what causes people to feel motivated in our organizations and what causes them frustration. As leaders, we may have assumptions about what our staff want or what's making them uncomfortable, miserable, frustrated, but these assumptions can be wrong. Leaders could save themselves a huge amount of employee stress and subsequent burnout 
if they were just better at asking people what they need. We often refer to a model at Virginia Mason called our VMPS house, our Virginia Mason production system house. And this discusses how we approach implementing and sustaining a culture of learning and improvement across our organization. Our house model starts with the foundational culture of learning and improvement. We build on the foundation of focus on leadership engagement with strategic alignment. And for this discussion today, we're really focused on two critical pillars, the pillar of culture of respect or respect for people and the pillar of continuous improvement. At the center of our house is what unifies us. It's a paramount focus on improvement from the perspective of the patient. Let's dive into respect for people. So why is the culture of respect a critical pillar in our house? Respect for people is not a standalone initiative. It's, just, it's a strategic imperative that ties to many other strategies across the organization. When studied what contributes to a workplace with better team performance and well-being, it really comes down to meeting the basic elements that we've heard of in things like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. For example, people need time during the day to fulfill basic self-care needs. This means they may, need to be, may, they may need to feel comfortable speaking up to their leaders when they need flexibility or asking teammates to help them out. They need things like social support and opportunities for meaningful engagement. This could come in the form of supporting the patient experience through improvement work or participating on a team that addresses health equity issues or helping to spread DEI approaches across the organization. We open the door for these basic human needs to be met when we focus on developing a culture of respect that looks at respect from all areas of the workplace experience. Now we're gonna take a look at what it means when, what it looks like when respect isn't present. This was uh, an activity that was um, done for Virginia Mason um, a couple of years ago around our respect for people training. So let's take a moment to see what happens when a respect for people culture isn't present. I'll be playing a patient service representative. I'll be playing a patient. I'll be playing provider yeah. one. I'll be care provider number two. <sighs> okay, I just got a couple more blanks to fill out. Uh, it says your birthday is January 4th. That is my cousin's birthday. And uh, every year we go out to, oh, God. Um, are, are you okay? Um, call code blue. It's okay. it's okay. Just try to relax. Help is on the way. Uh, just try to stay. Stay there. No, it's okay. You're okay. Just no. Help is coming any second now. What's going on? What's the code? Uh, he fell out of his chair while I was registering him, and I couldn't feel a pulse. Okay, I called away from something important for this. Looks like I don't even need to be here. Yeah, yeah she shouldn't have called the code. He's obviously doing okay. You can go if you need to. There's a stretch on the way, I guess, since I'm here anyways, I'll, I'll help you take him to the emergency department. Thanks. So that was pretty scary, but the way they treated me felt so embarrassing that I don't think I'm gonna call it code blue again. So these are the 10 foundational behaviors of respect at Virginia Mason. You'll see these behaviors in action throughout the organization. We encourage alignment with these traits in our communications, team meetings, and in individual one-on-one -on -one conversations. 
We align these behaviors to our recognition system so that distinct actions relating to any one of these 10 foundational behaviors can be called out and recognized when appropriate. And as you'll see further in our webinar, the behaviors are embedded in many of the processes we've, we've designed for continuous improvement and team engagement. Now let's see a redo of the scene we just watched with the behaviors of respect demonstrated. This helps us to see the importance of a culture of respect in the workplace. And this vignette also demonstrates the, the importance of providing guidance and examples of respectful behaviors to the model. Okay, I'm sorry, I know this is tedious, but we just have a couple more forms for you to fill out. Wanna make sure that we get all the information. Are you okay? Are you, sir, are you? Are you gonna oh. be, oh, um, uh, call code blue. It's okay, just go ahead and relax. Help is on the way. It's okay. Uh, hey, what's going on? How can I help? Uh, he just fell out of the chair while I was registering him and I couldn't feel a pulse. Hi, my name is Chris. Hi. How are we feeling today? Uh, I was just really dizzy. Okay. I didn't know what to do, he just fell down. There's a stretcher on the way to take you to the emergency department just as precaution, okay? Okay, thank you. Hey, thanks uh, for calling us. Thank you. I can stay with the patient if you wanna to talk to Mandy. Uh, yeah, you go ahead and do that. Let me know if you need anything, okay? Okay. They're going to take really good care of you. Is there anybody in the lobby that I should notify? Are you? I came by myself. Okay, great. Thanks. <sighs> so, how you doing? Oh, that was really scary. Uh, first time I ever called a code blue before. Um, but thank you for coming so quickly. I uh, really appreciate the support that you gave me. And now I'm glad he's going to be taken care of. I guess I can get back to my station now. That's probably yeah. a line backing up. But... Yeah, we got it. Good job, though. Thank you. So, anything I can do to help you two? I feel really supported and taken care of, thank you. <laughs> uh, situations like this can be really stressful and uh, really difficult, but it helps when the whole team's able to rally together and work together as a team. When something scary like that happens, it's nice to feel supported by your team, and I felt very empowered when I called the code blue, and now I know that he's going to get the help that he deserves. Yeah. So this is a tool that we have used um, as another example of guidance that can serve to provide teams and leaders to help reinforce the culture of respect and the behaviors that you just saw demonstrated in our videos. Um, you can use this in a team meeting as a group activity. It can be used in small groups, um, a large team conversation, or um, even in one-on-one -on -one conversations. We've done exercise around, exercises around this tool and, and uh, the foundational behaviors um, that you saw in a previous slide where team members would um, commit to a specific behavior that they want to focus on and then even um, take a step further to um, put their name on the, on the poster board under the behavior that they're focused, to, uh, focused and committed on to uh, working on. And that reinforces that we're all committed to growth and development with visibility that helps their peers support them in recognizing and reinforcing those behaviors. So our next critical pillar is about prioritizing improvement, not only through the patient experience, but also through the team's experience and reducing their burden of work. Overburden and exhaustion are key causes of burnout and can often be the result of waste that could be reduced or eliminated through improvement work. Things like inefficient processes, missing or ambiguous communication flows, lack of standardization, missing equipment, improper resourcing. If you start looking for waste, you will find them everywhere. Um, 
there must be just the right pressure with focusing on process improvement as too much focus can increase the stress. But with the right amount of productive distress, teams can unlock the ability to drive their ideas forward, obtain buy-in and increase ownership and teamwork. Recently in a training, our director of Kaizen and family physician, Kathy Edwards, reminded us that what brings people the most joy in work is being able to work at the top of their license, the top of their experience and skill set. This is what keeps people learning, challenged, and engaged. And the opposite of this is what creates burnout. Next, I'd like to hear from one of our physicians, introducing Dr. Inkiruki Duze, who earned her medical degree from Indiana University School of Medicine and completed her residency training at Virginia Mason Medical Center in Seattle. She is a board-certified internist who currently practices exclusively in our outpatient setting. Let's hear what she has to say. I do want to start by acknowledging that everyone experiences burnout in different ways and for different reasons. So my experience certainly wouldn't uh, fully encapsulate the breadth and depth of everyone else's experience. When I uh, was experiencing burnout, uh, I can tell you that I was constantly feeling physically and emotionally exhausted. At times, I felt overwhelmed. Other times, I was doubt, doubting that being a physician was actually my purpose in life uh, because I was conflicted that uh, a job that I love so much, that brought me so much joy, was also causing me uh, what I would describe as so much stress. But the primary reason uh, that I was experiencing burnout is that I was experiencing the deficit of time. And what I mean by that is that I would uh, go to work, see a full day of uh, patients in clinic, uh, and return home with at least an additional four to five hours of work left to do. So when I think about um, burnout and waste, you know, uh, there's, I think, several types of waste that we, you know, encounter in healthcare. But the type of waste that I believe uh, really uh, drove my burnout experience uh, had to do with unnecessary documentation and forms. So information waste. So I think that that was the primary thing that was driving my burnout experience. And when I just think about my like a particular day, that's just day to day, the first thing I think about is uh, our morning huddles, you know, huddling with the medical assistant looking at our schedule for the day and anticipating needs that, that that particular patients might have, which then gives us time to prepare in advance. For instance, knowing that a patient is going to need vaccinations during that visit or knowing that, you know, I'm probably going to get an EKG done with this patient and sharing that information with my medical assistant just makes for an easier flow and cuts down any time that the patient is waiting or cuts down any time that I would be waiting. The other way that I've seen VMPS cut down waste in my practice is, you know, uh, at all our locations, you know, essentially, you get this morning email, it's like a production board, it tells you who's in, who's out, it tells you who's on call, tells you if there's any deviation from my usual. For instance, you might get a, you know, from that uh, production board, a note saying that the lab is going to be closed from 1 to 2 p.m. So knowing that information cuts down waste because then I'm not going to have my patient go to the lab from 1 to 2, but rather share that information with them and say, you know, the lab is closed from 1 to 2, you may come back a different day for your labs to be done. So that's another uh, example I can think of in my day-to-day, -day. you know, suddenly adopting uh, 5S concept, 
thinking about production board emails for your teams, it's really certainly something that every organization should be adopting. So as we know, Dr. Duday's experience, Dr. Duzay's experience isn't unique. Um, it was just a few days ago that a new research study was published in the Journal of American Medical Association's Internal Medicine um, Journal representing the experience of more than 300,000 300, physicians across the US and more than 30% of them said they spend at least two hours completing documentation outside their work hours. And nearly 60% said this, the time they spent on documentation was not appropriate. Um, Dr. Duse brings up a couple of really key methods of simple things that could be adopted easily to help start to ease the burden of work and flow. She talks about huddling with your MA in the morning to identify any setup that could be done in advance of the day. Uh, she talks about identifying a or receiving a production board, which is could be a simple email that includes um, items uh, that may be differing for today or um, things that would help her so that she doesn't need to go searching for who do I ask today for this service or this support. We'll talk a little bit more about um, how those production boards can help us. So how do we get started? Let's look first at some simple tactics. Um, first, Taking a step back, we want to just, first of all, recognize and, and um, lead with transparency. So recognize that our distractions, our exhaustion, and ultimately burnout is happening all around us and that we want to get in front of it. We want to show respect by asking employees what's important to them. And we want to be specific. We want to ask them, are there things that we should stop doing right now? Are there things that um, we've put time and energy or money into that are not as important to you right now? And could those be traded out for something else that would make a difference for you? Look for ways to engage them in those decisions. And second, we wanna start harvesting their ideas to make incremental improvements in their work. What you see here on the left is a photo of a daily production board, which displays our let's work on it ideas in action. This is one of the elements of the production board that Dr. Jose describes in her video. On the right is a collection of ideas submitted from employees through the Let's Work On It process. Now, before introducing this process, team members would have ideas but might not be asked to share them. Now we have a process. Now it's the leader's role to provide the method for staff to make suggestions for improvement. We call this harvesting ideas. And as ideas are harvested, actions taken and made visible to others, and you gain momentum and it generates enthusiasm for more ideas. How do we solicit or submit ideas? Well, first rule is we try to keep it really simple. At our Kirkland Medical Center, every employee has a let's work on it icon on their desktop. As you see on the left-hand side, it's just a link to a simple email with a template. At our Bainbridge site on the right-hand side, staff have a quick form they fill out on our innovation homepage and they submit it online. Now this, these ideas go to the leadership team who reviews and sorts the ideas to determine what should be the next step. As a result of these processes, our staff engagement scores have improved at these sites. We have more data on the Kirkland story in our recent white paper, Better Never Stops, The Road to Real Results. Now let's talk about the life cycle of an idea. Remember those respect for people foundational behaviors we discussed earlier? You can see here in the life cycle of an idea how the respect for people behaviors are embedded in every step of the process. When a team member brings a concern or a problem to a leader, we first thank them for speaking up. We then encourage them to submit an idea or solution. They know the work better than anyone. They have the perspective and tools 
to help us understand how to improve it. And when the ideas flow to the leadership team, we work hard to listen to understand, to really grasp what they are asking. Sometimes this means we need to go back and ask more questions, dig further into the problem and be sure we're addressing the real issue or the root cause. We might then send thanks to our recognition system to show gratitude for every employee who takes the time to submit an idea. We show respect by connecting with others through our innovation teams or through the broader organization. And as ideas are tested out, we see teamwork happening, all the while team members are learning and growing through the experience. And when a solution is identified, we document the standard work, which now be, which indicates our best thinking on how something's being done today. And we share and spread those learnings or best practices, which then generates more ideas. Now let's talk a little bit about the role of the leader. Now, first I want to acknowledge what it's not. It's not superhero leadership. It's an old model and it no longer works. It doesn't build capability or resilience. Think back to the quote from Dr. Edwards about working to the top of your license or skill set. When a leader does all the problem solving, all it does is create a workforce of employees who are dependent on them. What staff need is a leader who is promoting a culture of respect, modeling good self-care behaviors. Leaders who model self-care are crucial to creating a culture in which employees feel empowered to protect their own wellness. Leaders who model vulnerability, who acknowledge their own need for psychological help can then normalize the need for psychological processing. And finally, leaders need to encourage independence and engagement through problem framing, not problem solving. I wanna to talk to you about what happens when leaders push teams to embrace their ideas by problem framing. In this example, a staff member identified a problem and brought it to the leader. The leader had heard the problem multiple times and the problem impacts patient care, results in patient dissatisfaction and delays of care. Staff were directed to conduct formal root cause analysis using tools on our Kaizen promotion site. The outcome is twofold. First, the team solved the problem together. But second, and even more surprising is the longer term impact. The team is inspired to do more. In this example, the staff went on to independently develop a training and education module for their fellow team members and physicians as they recognized that with more understanding of the lab's processes, they could reduce the potential for future defects. More than just making small tactical changes, this is about people rediscovering why they're in these roles and elevating their engagement and ultimately their joy at work. This is another great example of team engagement at the ground level. During COVID, a team from our Surrey and Sussex Trust in the UK came together to solve a problem using an everyday lean idea approach. They studied the process together, they collected data and applied their best thinking, which ultimately resulted in a change that improved their workplace safety. Next, I wanna hear from Shelley Powell on the critical factors to thriving. Thank you, Summer. Um, I just wanted to jump in and add that I think many of us um, listening today have probably felt in our years in healthcare, we've never been so challenged as we feel right now. I've been in healthcare well over 30 years and the pandemic challenges, the changes to our care mix, the rising costs and challenging economics of healthcare and obviously the staff shortages, I think have bedeviled many, many of us across the nation at different times and continue to this day. And 
Summer walking us through all the contributing factors to burnout just reminds us that, that there's a lot in our environment that we have to attend to and hopefully improve. So I just wanted to start with a few thoughts. Um, I've been working on my own personal passion of studying burnout for a number of years now. And one of the words I would challenge us to think about is uh, thriving. And what would it look like if we could call out for ourselves a more positive, aspirational goal for how we want work uh, to be for ourselves, for those around us. And the reason I, I point that out is I think from a provocation point of view, a lot of what we read in the burnout literature is about you know, developing more individual resilience. And not that that's not a helpful strategy, but it almost puts the onus on the individual. It, it's my work to learn to take it better. Like I just need to really work on my own skills, my own self, my own responses. And while that is a part of the burnout challenges that we face, what I often see organizations struggling with is the easiest things to put in front of our teams are those that focus on personal well-being. Many of us have EAP programs. Many of us have respite spaces, or we've been working to create those, or uh, we have various benefits and tools that we've brought, particularly over the pandemic, to help with mindfulness and breathing and meditation, those things that really help us in that moment of stress and to develop long-term resilience. What I would argue, though, is we've just absolutely, and I think you heard this from Summer too, absolutely got to think about What's the level of intervention needed from the organization? What is the organization actively doing and working on that signals to our teams we're serious about burnout? And how do we focus that work in my local lived work experience, right? So the, at the team level, what is it we need to work on that will improve our day-to-day -day lived experience? Those issues and causes are gonna look very different for a busy, overwhelmed, primary care practice than they are for a CCU nurse, right? They're, those are gonna be some different issues. And so dropping into that level of local focus and local control is crucial to all the different levels of impact we wanna have in the burnout equation. So when we talk about thriving, what does that look like? And in the literature, um, the conclusions I've drawn over years of study are really three critical factors. And the first, uh, and one that for us in healthcare couldn't be more critical is meaning in our work. What's our sense of meaning? What's our sense of purpose? And we often fly right by that one. We, we assume it's a ticket of entry in healthcare, that we're all here because we want to be in healthcare. We all aspire to serve people. For some of us, we, would, we might even articulate it as a vocation. And it's still something we wanna feed and nurture. So thinking about how do we remind people of that important sense of purpose? How do we make sure that all meetings start with a reconnection to our purpose? Why we're here, why we're gathering, who we're here for, what are the stories that inspire us that we should be sharing? Um, why do each of us do what we do? How did we come to be in healthcare? Those are stories that leaders rarely ask their teams. And I would argue that they are they are absolutely foundational to understanding how to engage and reinforce the busy, crazy environment we find ourselves in 
is I got to get back down to my values. I've got to really be in touch with why I'm here and why I choose to stay in healthcare. The second piece is all about how I manage my personal energy and my team's energy. We heard things like, I feel out of control. I have too much work. I'm overwhelmed. I don't know where to go first. Um, that I think is all about, as Summer mentioned, idea harvesting, having a set of tools that we can point at what we call here at Virginia Mason, the rocks in our shoes, having conversations with our team about those rocks. Sometimes there are a lot uh, of issues that we need to tackle. We're not going to tackle them all at once. We're going to pick something that we can take action on and really build trust and momentum by prioritizing what's going to give us our biggest bang for our buck. So having an improvement methodology is crucial to that. And lastly, um, and I, in this environment where we have found ourselves separated and isolated from each other for health and safety reasons, we've done so much more virtually than we ever have before. It's left an epidemic of loneliness in its path. Community building cannot be more important than it has at this point in our, in our community. And thinking about what are the ways I build connection how do I make sure that my team knows each other, that they feel known, that they feel seen, that they feel celebrated and thanked? And so thinking strategically about how do I, how do, I do that? Not just in a digital environment, but every day on the floor in a team huddle, um, in staff meetings, I don't drop in and just handle the agenda right away. I always start with connection. How do, I, how do I see people, acknowledge people, tell patient stories before we dive into an agenda? And so those, those principles, I think, are crucial to moving from burnout to a place where we're really thinking about thriving. Summer, I'm thinking there might be questions for us. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you both so yeah. much. This is great. Let's jump right into the Q&A session. And Shelly, we actually had a couple questions we received in advance that I'd like to uh, kick this off with. Um, so first, just given your range of experience, can you speak to how burnout has to be addressed in a way that really does consider that full spectrum from the executive level all the way down to the front line? Yeah, so a lot of different strategies there. And I, I can't under, I, I want to reinforce so many times the crucial nature of the respect for people behaviors that Summer spoke about a few minutes ago. Um, to me, it has to start there. And it's something that as leaders and as team members, we commit ourselves to. Uh, as Summer mentioned, we have tactics in place at Virginia Mason to reinforce those behaviors, to thank people when we see those behaviors. Um, and as we also shared, to call out when we're not experiencing those behaviors. But to me, those are foundational. Those are the, that's the door in to addressing burnout is to making sure we're really creating a culture of psychological, psychological safety and that those behaviors are modeled by our leaders at each level. So that, to me, I just wanted to go back to that and say, before all else, before any new self-care programs, before any other initiatives, it's about how do we want to feel and work together and what behaviors help us live that. Great. And in building from that, Shelly, those, those behaviors that are so crucial, especially from 
leadership. Um, can you just speak a little more to how you would advise on, on making sure that leaders are modeling uh, the right behaviors that are really driving well-being? Yeah, we, we had a great example just a few weeks ago. Um, our Omicron surge came a little bit later than other parts of the country. And like many areas, you've probably found yourself at an absolute low in terms of our staffing, our ability to address patient care needs. And so what we did was we took tasks that all levels of leadership across the organization could plug in and do to assist our inpatient teams. And we made those uh, schedulable, if you will, so that our leaders, whether they're supervisors, managers, directors, executives, physician executives, were all taking shifts in our environment to assist in ways that our inpatient teams just desperately needed. So examples were um, our chief clinical officer was working as a sitter on a night shift. Our, uh, I, I took a shift restocking PPE and linens for all of the units. It's doing things that are very visible to our teams who are feeling overwhelmed and frazzled and making sure that we're plugging in in ways that lift the burden of work and have a sense of walking in your shoes. Um, when we take those kinds of steps, not only are we present in the work environment with our teams that are struggling, we're able to see and experience some of what they're feeling, but it also gives us a notion of how we can plug in differently as the pandemic eased to come back around and focus our attention on things that we could tell were creating rocks and shoes. Wonderful, thank you, Shelley. Um, so, and just in building on that, and, and maybe Summer can jump in on this next one too. Um, we received a couple uh, questions related to leadership in advance from our attendees here um, about what happens when leaders are um, sort of a barrier. And so one was about helping middle management um, um, provide more support when upper management isn't really supporting this or demonstrating those behaviors or creating that safe culture. And another one was, um, you know, what if just leadership is kind of a cause of this burnout? So what do you do when you have the opposite issue? You know, I would take a start at saying um, th that we can all model behaviors um, that we want to see in ourselves and others, um, regardless of our role. Right. We it doesn't matter what our title is. We can model the behaviors of respect that we talked about earlier. And sometimes we can be more intentional about how we model them. So an example that Shelley gave uh, just last week is that it, at a at a meeting where there's a, a colleague who may be noticeably missing, her leader will take the time to, to point out that that person's missing because they are um, taking some much deserved respite um, and that we are in gratitude for the fact that they are they're taking care of themselves so um, we can do that as um, as individuals and the other thing I think is that the first thing I would say is um, you know I would always uh, assume best intent I don't think that leaders are you know they're it's not malicious that they're coming out and and um, and and showing the signs of their distress and their stress is is coming forward through all that we've all been through and what we're what the pressures that we're dealing with and sometimes we just need to take a moment and it may be a private moment to say, to pull them aside and say, can we talk about it? Can I, can we uh, frame a conversation around um, the, the stresses that I'm seeing 
and um, and things that the behaviors maybe that I'm seeing, um, you can use that framework, the foundational uh, respect for, for behaviors um, framework to say, um, you know, this is this um, this is the behavior that I've noticed, and I'm wondering how I can help you and support you with this. Um, and the other thing we can do, if you have, if it even needs to go further than that, are things like going back to if you have an organizational compact um, or something that is um, something you can you can stand on that says this is um, the organization's um, expectations of me, and this is how the organization can support you here. Um, those are always difficult conversations when it, when you're trying to manage up. And I recognize that it's much easier to say it than to do it. But I will say that um, with practice comes confidence in, in moving those things forward. And most of the time people are mostly number one, unaware at the way that they're coming across and they're just bringing some attention to it to understand it um, in, a, in a supportive way is, is usually um, received with gratitude. Shelly, what would you add? I, I was just going to say, you know, we had an interesting example um, a couple of weeks ago at a meeting that might resonate with, with some of us on the seminar. And that was, you know, um, a lot of our, our senior executives and um, senior leaders are really struggling with two um, what often feel like diametrically opposed challenges. And that is, how do we recover from the absolute economic unwinding that's occurred in healthcare organizations from pivoting away from some of the things that have been part of our healthy bottom line in order to take care of our patients and do what's needed through the pandemic. So you have this incredible pressure on the economics and that same leader also knows that there's incredible pressure on our team and our people. And so those things often are feeling in absolute conflict and so one of the ways we addressed that most recently in a meeting with our leadership team was we framed it as a conversation that we wanted to have all together. So calling out that those two things feel absolutely opposed. And we, we said, how do we thread the needle, right? How do just call out that, that seeming conflict? And how do we have conversations with our home teams, with our uh, physician colleagues, with our staff, about these realities, these true realities, both things are true. And how do you talk about that with your home teams, with your staff, with your leaders, with your colleagues? And we just had that conversation. So senior leadership creating the, the space for leaders to say, I don't know how to have that conversation. I feel vulnerable about that conversation. I need some help with that. Um, I don't want people to feel like they're not working hard enough. And yet I understand what we need to do uh, from an economic perspective. And so what I thought was so valuable about the conversation is nobody never necessarily comes to that with the answer, right? The perfect talking points. But what we're doing is just creating the space to acknowledge in this leadership moment, we don't have the answers. What we have is sometimes competing pressures and let's talk together about how to have those conversations with our people so that they feel respected and they understand uh, the pressures that we're feeling and that we're trying to respond to. So it, it was a really great uh, leadership moment, I think, to just invite people to um, share that they needed help with that. Great, thank you so much. And and um, kind of just building on that again, um, there's, there's a couple questions being brought up around, how you um, 
how you really can drive some of the urgency to um, to make sure that there's effort being invested from a leadership level, but also from a team level to to um, make more space for driving some of these changes. So can you speak a little bit to pushing that urgency across those levels? Yeah, I, I think um, absolutely at the home team level, the, the site or the section level, it's all about having quick conversations about our rocks and our shoes, let's get them all out, and then let's quickly prioritize them together. Which one's gonna have the biggest impact for the lowest effort, right? Two easy ways to think about what we wanna take action on and what would make a difference. When we focus on just one thing at a time, we don't need a long list. Leaders always have too big of a list, but let's just focus on one thing that could make a difference. What ideas do we have and what can we try this afternoon? What could we try tomorrow? Having a sense of urgency about pulling that waste off the shoulders of our people couldn't be more important. When I facilitate conversations uh, at our report outs where we share the improvement work going on across the organization, I'm always trying to tie the work I'm hearing about to the impact it's making for our people. We always tie it to the patient because that is our priority for, as a healthcare organization. And increasingly, I'm digging out the themes of how did that make things better for our people um, and really celebrating those stories. More importantly, making sure that our leaders take those back to our home teams and talk about those stories as ways everyone across the, the organization is trying to lift the burden, improve the work, and make our work experience better. So that, that's what I would focus on at the local level. I think, as I mentioned, our leaders, our senior leaders have an obligation to be prioritizing improvement work that makes a difference for our people at the front line, right? So instead of working on, you know, here's 10 things we could do for improvement, what's the one on that list that's gonna make a big difference for the team that's delivering the care. Like, let's look at it through that lens because it's gonna give us multiple wins. So I think that's how executives really try to turn up the sense of, of urgency that let's really focus in on this and make a difference for our people right now. I love that. And I would just um, add, Shelly, that was such a great um, response. And one thing that, one behavior that I've seen recently um, in our own organization that I've so appreciated is that leaders are also thinking about what can we stop doing right now? What can we pause? What can we what can we move to a different cadence? You talked about the report outs that we have, you know, for years and years we've had a weekly cadence of reporting out and sharing our improvement work, and that's so important to us as a culture. And we don't want it to go away. We don't want to stop it. But we've gone to a new cadence. Now we're in a, in an every other week cadence, and that just gives a little bit of acknowledgement that there needs to be space because people need an other um, need to focus on, on the, those improvements, those single improvement um, opportunities that you're talking about. And sometimes I think as leaders, when we are adding new approaches and new ways of looking at things, we sometimes don't take the time to stop and say, okay, what are we taking away to make space for this new energy so that it doesn't feel like we're just adding something that's creating even more burden, even if it's a good burden, thinking about respect for people's behaviors, et cetera. Those are things that are going to help, but someone's got to have time and space to think on it and to think about how, what can I do to, to, to use this, this skill. And, and so there's got to be something that gives up, that's given up. And when we think about it and look at it, there's usually something that isn't giving us the, the value and the bang for our buck at this moment that we can either put on pause or say, we're just not going to do that any longer. 
Thank you, Summer. And so building on that, and there's a there's another question in here from Margaret that I see has a couple of votes. Um, and so building on the idea of having to cut down, but also with all of these ideas coming in, you know, you can hope for having a lot of ideas coming in when you have like a let's work on it type process in place. But um, when you're having to even prioritize with those ideas, how do you help with making sure that the employees who are submitting ideas that aren't getting selected as priority, um, how do you help make sure that they uh, don't feel like their ideas are being ignored? That's a, I'll just jump in on that because I've, I've definitely been in the, the shoes of trying to manage that prioritization. And I would say the, going back to that model of the life cycle of an idea, the first thing that's so important is we show gratitude. We say thank you for submitting an idea. It's important to us. And we acknowledge and go back to the person and say, here's what's happening with this idea. There may not be a solution that we can work toward right now. There may be a lot of times it's a larger organizational issue or organizational plan that's in place and they just need to connect the dots to what's happening. There is some, uh, some support coming and we just need to be as leaders, the ones who are giving them that communication and, and getting back to them about where things are happening. And sometimes it's about generating more questions to say, you know, help me understand this where, you know, and, and people themselves may come to the conclusion that, oh, this isn't the right timing for that idea. Maybe, maybe we could um, put it aside. It, it, it does take a little bit of effort, but I just think it's about connecting with that person to acknowledge, uh, show gratitude. And then, you know, it's talk about what is possible and what's not possible right now, maybe possible down the, down the line. What would you add, Shelley? I think um, the way I've seen that done as well effectively is when you have team conversations about rocks in our shoes, you can generate a ton of ideas. And then I think having that shared team go back through with the lens together of what's gonna give us our biggest bang, uh, what's gonna give us the biggest bang at the lowest effort, that if we're making those choices together as a team, the conversation that's happening, um, I as the idea submitter don't have to hang on so tightly because we're all working on what's gonna what's gonna affect the the work group overall uh, the biggest. And it doesn't mean mine's not gonna get the attention. It just means it might not be first. Great, thank you, Shelley. Um, so jumping down to a little bit more of a tactical level, we have a few questions just about specific. Um, tangible steps or, or like tools or activities. So um, one is, can you recommend any short um, or simple activities that teams can use um, to uh, help in addition to the like idea harvesting process or the speaking up to disrespect activity that Summer mentioned earlier? Can you speak to a little bit more of those types of things that teams can get started with? Yeah, I think Shelly's uh, mentioned a couple times the rocks in our shoes. Um, that tends to be a um, inviting a conversation. And we, we use it a lot in huddles because it can be fast just to say, you know, what are the what are the rocks in your shoes? What are the things that are really bothering you right now? And let's get to a you know very specific um, level of what what are things that we have um, the, the, the ability and influence to to manage and make change in right now. And just gathering those ideas in a huddle can be can be a very quick activity, um, and quickly moving from these are the rocks to okay, what are we? What can we work on? I love what Shelley said earlier. It, it putting it back to the team to say, okay, we've got a list of things here. What do you guys want to tackle first? And then everybody's energy is focused on on that on tackling that. And I know 
Shelly, you've got lots of uh, activities in your in your uh, toolbox as well. So I'd love to hear what you have to say. Yeah, I, I think the other thing I would uh, I would just reinforce is that huddles and meetings are always great places um, to make sure we're always coming back to that meeting and the meaning and purpose and the community building. And, you know, I read this really great book from Patrick Lencioni a number of years ago called Three Signs of a Miserable Job. And one of the signs ties directly back to community. And it's all about anonymity, that anonymity makes people miserable. So how do we help get to know people and create those connections? And starting a meeting with a get to know you kind of a question, how did you come to be in healthcare is a fascinating question. Everybody has a story. Uh, about how they came to be in this space with us today. And yet we've so rarely asked. Um, and sharing patient stories, again, you're just, you're looking to reinforce, it's all free. It's right there in the group that you're working with. It's just that sharing those personal stories are a way that we create closer bonds and connections so that as we live through stressful times, we have a sense of I'm known, I'm valued, I'm appreciated, I'm seen. So, you know, there's absolutely great tactical activities, but I would also um, put in your toolkit uh, the things that foster connection and really reinforce that sense of meaning and purpose. Thanks, Shelley. All right. Well, we are five minutes out from the end, so let's go ahead and wrap up. And 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 I just want to add to that, Shelley. I think many of those things to um, to Lisa's question I saw um, come in. Many of those things you just said apply to virtual as well, which is great as we transition into this virtual world. All right. Um, let's go ahead and put up the closing housekeeping slides, and we will go ahead and wrap up. Uh, thank you, Summer and Shelley, again, for this session. This was great. And I want to remind everyone um, that you can visit our tools page on our website to download a lot of these uh, related tools that we discussed today, um, including our Speaking Up to Disrespect activity and idea generation um, toolkits for teams. Um, you'll also receive an email with a link to the webinar recording following the session. Um, and I'd also like to remind everyone that we have new cohorts open in our virtual training program. So I encourage um, you to explore those if you're interested uh, for you or your teams for developing your process improvement skill set, as well as our flow in the ambulatory setting program. We also have uh, customizable respect for training uh, programs available. So please do contact us if you're interested. And please do connect with us on Twitter and LinkedIn for news, um, updates, and other upcoming events. And if you're interested in continuing your learning, we have a variety of other services to help meet your needs, including trainings, coaching, and organizational transformation services. And so you can learn more at our website, and you can also email us anytime at info at virginiamasoninstitute.org. All right, thank you again to Summer and Shelley and for everyone participating in today's webinar. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you, bye-bye. Thanks again for joining us for this Virginia Mason Institute webinar recording. The video recordings and Q&A transcripts are also available on our website under the resources section. Please also stay tuned for our upcoming original podcast series where we'll be interviewing healthcare leaders and improvement experts to provide you insights and inspiration from our Virginia Mason team. Thanks again for listening.